Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. For the Sunday debate, this week we're looking into an issue being hotly contested at the moment in European, Irish and UK politics, the future of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Our host today is Emma Vardy, Ireland correspondent for BBC News. Here's Emma with more. Hello, everyone. It's a great pleasure for me to be hosting this. And of course, I'm speaking to you from here in Belfast. And this is where, of course, the protocol is having an effect on many people's lives. Let's just rewind a bit. Of course, it was a compromise agreement negotiated at length between the UK and the EU, which was supposed to be a way to preserve peace and stability on the island of Ireland. But as we all know, it's been a source of great tension ever since. Now, if you're here like me and you go out speaking to businesses, lots will tell you, look, we're getting to grips with the protocol. We want it simplified a bit, but it's working for us. In fact, there are businesses who are saying that we are benefiting by making the most of access to dual markets to both the UK and the EU. But there are others who will say it's a complete headache. They will point me at the reams of paperwork that are keeping them up at night and say, look, why is it, why do we have to fill out all this nonsense red tape to get goods from one part of the UK to the other? And they say it's very costly and disruptive. Now, of course, the other thing, whether you care about business or not, something that affects everybody in Northern Ireland is that we have no functioning government here at the moment because the DUP is refusing to go back into power sharing unless its demands around the protocol are met. So we are at a really critical point here. Now, what's happening? Lots of things at once. Well, the British government is legislating to override parts of the protocol, uh, taking unilateral action. There's legal retaliation from the EU and further ahead warnings that it could potentially jeopardise the whole post-Brexit trading agreement. So it is a really important question that we're here to discuss today, which is, should the protocol be honoured and protected or should it be dismantled and changed? And to help us better understand these questions, we've got three uh, great panellists here today. So let's say a well, warm welcome to Claire Hanna. She's the Member of Parliament for South Belfast. She represents the SDLP, which of course is one of the two largest nationalist parties in Northern Ireland. And Claire served as the chair of the Assembly All Party Groups on International Development and the Arts and also a member of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. So hello to you. Uh, Jill Rutter, next, a senior research fellow for the UK in a changing Europe, previously the programme director at the Institute for Government, directing the organisation's work on better policymaking and, of course, Brexit. And Darren McCaffrey, he's the political editor and presenter for GB News, previously Sky's Island correspondent, a fellow Island correspondent, and political editor of Euronews. So I want to start off just by asking all of you, 
What did you make of the government's new bill seeking to unilaterally change the protocol? Were you in any way surprised by how far it went? And really, what do you what effect do you think it's going to have on the situation in the months ahead? Claire. Yeah, yes, I think I think it was certainly um, it was broader and deeper than we expected. I suppose at the at the worst end of the scale in terms of of disruption and as a as an opening gambit, it it, it wouldn't lead you to believe that it's actually intended to get to a negotiated um, settlement. I, I don't I don't think it's helpful for what it's worth. I think there are solutions and 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 landing spaces to be found here, but I think it it represents a very substantial breach of faith and departure from from the process. The EU have been fairly clear it undermines trust with them. And of course, it is unwanted by a substantial number of people in Northern Ireland. You'll be aware that a majority, three parties anyway, of MLAs in the Assembly have indicated their deep concern about it. And I I don't think there are any business organisations that have indicated their support for unilateral action uh, per se and for a lot of the provisions in this bill. So I think it was a, a bad move, badly delivered. Okay, thanks, Claire. Of course, Claire, a strong voice opposing the government's move here in Northern Ireland, like same, pretty much on the same page as the other non-unionist parties here when it comes to the protocol. Darren, give us your perspective then. The government's made this move now to, to put this legislation forward. What effect do you think that's going to have on the dynamic in the months ahead? Well, I think in many ways, um, it's quite difficult to work out whether this is an att- a genuine attempt in some ways to kind of upturn the, the apple cod, if you like, or whether it is essentially part of negotiating tactic with the government very much backed into a corner. There's not going to be many people, there's not many people even here in Westminster who've got much sympathy for the UK government who backed themselves into this corner themselves. But we have to be uh, kind of a bot on this, and Claire alluded to it. You know, there is clearly a sizable section of the population and of political parties in Northern Ireland who do not like the protocol in its current form. And something is going to have to frankly give. Now, it is entirely possible this legislation won't get through Parliament at all. Still hasn't been published yet. It's going to have a difficult time in the Commons and even more difficult time in the House of Lords. So we're talking about quite a long way down at the pathway, I think. And yet there is a sense of almost urgency in Northern Ireland that something needs to be sorted pretty quickly. As you say, there isn't an assembly. Most voters, you know, I'm from Northern Ireland, got lots of relatives there. They want to see local politicians back in Stormont making decisions on their behalf. But frankly, something is going to have to give on the protocol for that to happen. And I think there is a, a sense when you talk to people in Brussels and in Dublin and indeed to some nationalist politicians that actually in many ways they're the people not willing to move substantially on this to kind of help unionists out. And I think there has to be an understanding about that, doesn't it? That the, obviously the compromise, as you say, was that protocol. That was in part to ensure there was no border on the island of Ireland. I think that's been understanding too, of trying to address those concerns that unions are really, really uneasy about this border in the Irish Sea and trying to practically make that work. There is a way through this. There will be a way through it. Um, but I think both sides need to understand that there has to be a compromise. And the sense here in Westminster is that the EU are actually the ones that are digging in their heels. Okay, thanks, Darren. Jill, what did you make of what was in the legislation then? And as Darren says, there needs to be some sort of compromise. Will this legislation in any way help or hinder the the negotiations which are continuing with the EU? Well, I don't think the substance was particularly surprising because it was foreshadowed in a white paper that the government published in July last year, which set out the changes it wanted to see in the protocol. I think people were surprised at the extent to which government was taking powers to displace basically most of most of the trade provisions in the protocol, plus some of the governance provisions. It didn't leave very much left of what it negotiated and signed up to. But I do think there is a real issue with trust. I was in Brussels last week. Relations between the UK and the EU were widely described as being at the lowest ebb people had seen through the whole Brexit process. That's not a good basis for redoing something that was ultimately based on trust. And it was very difficult. I was in a meeting with one of the permanent representatives of a government that's quite sympathetic, or used to be quite sympathetic to the UK. I said, well, what do you make of the sort of substantive concerns that some people in Northern Ireland have about the way the protocol is operated? Do you think the UK government's got a point on that? And the response was, well, you signed it. And it's very difficult to get beyond that the government knowingly in October 2019 
signed this protocol, something rejected by Theresa May 18 months earlier as totally unacceptable to any British prime minister. And they signed it to get open the pathway to sort of Brexit that Boris Johnson government wanted, albeit a Brexit just for Great Britain. Well, you mentioned back in the, the Theresa May era there. want to ask you something that people always ask me to do uh, in broadcasting. I'm going to put you on the spot for it. So for those who aren't familiar, could you sum up about three years of negotiations into about a minute for us? Just remind everyone how the protocol came into being in the first place. And also, do you think the alternative that, the, that Theresa May put forward back in 2019, remember the old backstop days, would, would that agreement have avoided some of the conflict now, do you think? So the reason we are here is because people are trying to reconcile three things. They're trying to reconcile the EU's insistence on preserving the integrity of the single market, that goods can flow freely all around the EU, the UK's desire for regulatory autonomy after Brexit, so not aligning with EU rules, and the agreed desire not to have any checks and hard infrastructure at the very sensitive land border in Ireland. So what Theresa May agreed was what was called a backstop, which was saying, if we haven't solved this through the long-term relationship between the UK and the EU, then we'll default back to an arrangement. But Theresa May said, actually, we won't put Northern Ireland in a separate customs territory. That'll apply across the whole of the UK. And I'll accept that basically the rest of the UK will keep aligned with EU rules unless Northern Ireland says it's happy for us to diverge. So she was giving all these assurances. But hers was, if you like, a staging point. It wasn't the end point. It was a sort of set of guarantees, depending on what was negotiated in the long-term future relationship. Remember, Theresa May never got to do that negotiation because she'd been binned by then. Uh, what Boris Johnson did was instead is he moved the backstop forward and said, actually, we're going to take out this Northern Ireland issue. We're going to deal with it now, set in place the trading regime. Some of the aspects could have been ameliorated if he'd done a much closer relationship with the EU in the trade and cooperation agreement that was agreed a year later. Boris Johnson, David Frost didn't want to do that. So we had a very hard form of Brexit, a lot of regulatory independence, but that's meant that that Irish sea border has become, in consequence, much deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Claire, um, well summed up, by the way, a lot of information packed into three minutes. Uh, you can come and do my News at 10 live next time. Yeah, well, I failed on your one minute test. There well, it's a, we'll give you a bit of leeway. That's okay. Claire, now, as you know very well about the, the DUP and union oppositions to aspects of the protocol, the protocol ideologically as a whole here in Northern Ireland. From the DUP perspective, Boris Johnson very much betrayed them. You know, he promised he wouldn't put a border in the Irish Sea and then very much did that to get, get that withdrawal agreement. Can you, to what extent can you, as a nationalist party, can you empathise with concerns from unionists? That, that feeling that the Irish Sea border undermines their sense of belonging as part of the UK? Is it ever possible to overcome that deeply held ideological objection to the protocol as well as all the economic arguments that unionists have? If you're going to try and ask unionists to accept that there must be some border between one part of the UK and the other. Yeah, well, of course, the SDLP has always been acutely aware that borders have symbolic value, which is why um, for years and and a bit of PTSD from Jill's summing up of those years. And of course, they were very eventful and choppy, but uh, I spent them practically begging the DUP and others not to vote for a Brexit that created a border anywhere in these islands because we knew it would uh, be impactful both to businesses and people's ability to trade north, south, east and west, but but also that uh, for many people it, it is linked to their identity as well. And we cautioned against creating a Brexit that had winners or losers. But unfortunately, by process of elimination, by voting uh, down all of the other um, compromise iterations of Brexit, we have ended up with the protocol. We were not delighted about it. It was very clear. It was not a good solution. It is frustrating that in all of those years when people like me and others were talking about consent and consensus, that was dismissed and sniggered at. And 
and, and I know we went to court and so on to try and, I suppose, put some consent mechanisms and, and the ethos into um, the various Brexit bills. And they were voted down by the DUP as they gleefully voted for harder versions um, of Brexit. And I don't say that to rub anybody's nose in it, but we, we they have chosen it um, by process of elimination. But definitely, I, I, I of course, I have sympathy for it. What I'm frustrated about is that there hasn't really been a reckoning and an honesty with people about the realities of trade and the movement of goods. It has been presented entirely as an identity issue and it has been presented as if some, you know, world policeman or the EU just decided, hmm, well, we favour the nationalists or the unionists rather than addressing the realities of doing business on the island of Ireland and the fact that you couldn't possibly implement a regulatory border um, on such an integrated economy as this. And I suppose in terms of the impact on people's everyday lives, there would be more impact if there was a hard border along the several hundred kilometres of land border than there is in the sea at a finite number of ports and that it has a less of an impact on people living in those areas. You know, if you had to be stopped or, or you know, lorries had to be stopped than it does that your you know ham sandwich or whatever was 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 subject to checks and that as I say is absolutely not to dismiss the concerns but I would say one more thing people like me and I, I yes I'm a nationalist I mean I wouldn't identify as nationalist in any other context but yes I, I, I believe that an island of this size logically is governed as one and I believe in self-determination and I believe in the people of Northern Ireland and all their diversity making a decision about their their governance and I believe in doing that when the majority want it but but I live with a constitutional reality that isn't my desired setup. And I suppose that's what maybe unionism is saying. This isn't constitutionally perfect for us. We feel slightly different to British people in England, Scotland and Wales. So this cannot stand. I am governed in a slightly different way to other Irish people in other parts of the island. It doesn't define who I am. And that, con- you know, that that concept of, of, of slight compromise and the fact that your identity might not line up exactly with the governance lines is something a lot of us are used to because really sharp lines are around sovereignty don't work in a complicated place like Northern Ireland. Okay, thanks, Claire. I mean, that's, of course, quite an ideological argument, isn't it, about sort of accepting something which doesn't sit well with you. I can give you the trade ones as well. Well, well, I'm going to go on to, to the economics of this. You know, we are, of course, hearing lots of businesses saying, they are getting to grips with the protocol. You know, even non-news parties are saying arrangements need to be simplified, made easier for businesses, but not scrapped entirely. So, Darren, I just wonder what your perspective is on the real driving force behind the government's objections to the protocol. Is it now more about ideology, about helping to get the DUP back into power sharing? Or is it really about the economics and the difficulties for businesses who say it's costing them more to get things over the Irish Sea? Yeah, I mean, I think, frankly, it's a little bit of both. I mean, don't get me wrong, I asked this question of, of, of the Prime Minister and others, you know, quite regularly about the fact that Northern Irish economy is doing quite well at the moment, uh, unlike economies in England, Scotland and Wales. I think only London's growing at the moment, or has been at least at the start of this year, quicker than Northern Ireland. So the Northern Irish economy is not doing that badly. Just to pick up, though, on, on kind of what Claire and Jill were saying slightly, and I, I kind of want to focus on just a little bit, is this idea of the single market. And it's it's been fascinating. We don't want to go over Brexit again. And of course, you know, there was an argument made that Britain voted for Brexit. So it's going to have to in some ways come up with the solutions. But it is interesting, the kind of that the view that the single market is kind of beyond the pale, that it's almost kind of like gravity, that it cannot be questioned. And and, and all I would say is that the EU talk about trust and compromise, but actually on that, they've not necessarily been terribly willing uh, to compromise. Northern Ireland, as we all know, is a pretty unique place in on these islands, and it's a unique place even in Europe. And the EU talks a lot about the Good Friday Agreement. And one would have thought if there was one place they might be willing in part to compromise on the single market, it would be in Northern Ireland. At the end of the day, most goods that go from GB into Northern Ireland, they don't go beyond Northern Ireland. And even those that do, the rest of Ireland is an island. It'd be in a kind of weird way to kind of smuggle things into continental Europe or to try and undermine, you know, a very, very bit, the world's largest uh, market. And I think actually the EU have not been questioned enough about why in these very unique circumstances, they're not willing to make bigger compromises on what they see as their red line you know, the, the, the access to the single market. And, and in the end, I think that's the deep frustration in some ways, is that the EU have not really been willing uh, to do that. Is there ideological arguments involved in this? Yes, of course. Do the Conservative Party, Emma, like to argue that they're the you know, Conservative and Unionist Party, though most Unionists feel pretty abandoned by uh, Boris Johnson? 
Yes, they do. I think there is an urgency, and I think the government do, does feel this, to try and get Stormont back up and running again. When there's a political vacuum in Northern Ireland, that's always quite dangerous. And, and frankly, they know, they know that without some type of movement on the protocol, that's unlikely to happen. Now, taking this unilateral action, it's not even pleased the DUP. We're no closer to getting Stormont in resolved, so that tactic doesn't seem to have worked. Does the UK want to have a, a battle, a row with the EU? Is that politically expedient for Boris Johnson, uh, given all his troubles? I'm not entirely sold on that uh, argument. I think there is a thing where they've kind of looked at this protocol. Yes, they've signed up to it. Uh, but in essence, they probably didn't understand, uh, and, and, and terribly so, they didn't understand the deep-rooted Eunice concerns about it. That's very stark these days. And and I think Downing Street are trying, in a very blunt way, to try and sort that out. I'm interested to, to discuss how much flexibility we think that the EU has shown. Because, in you know, the, the legislation put forward by the British government is talking about a green lane. So stuff that goes over the Irish Sea and is staying in Northern Ireland can go through the green lane. And then there's a red lane for um, goods that will potentially go on to the Republic of Ireland. Now, there have been similar things also suggested in different words, haven't there? A little bit further back by the EU, we had Mara Sefcovic talking to BBC Northern Ireland, the local programme here the other day and saying, look, well, we're putting forward a simplified three-page document for lorries and goods coming over the Irish Sea. So, Jill, I'm sure you've, as much as um, some of us nerds over here have been reading some of this stuff in great detail when command papers and things like that are published. Jill, in your perspective, how much flexibility do you think the EU has shown towards the UK's demands? And are the two actually not that far apart if you want to read the small print? I think there's some areas where you could see what everybody refers to as a possible landing zone between the two. You mentioned the sort of green lanes, the EU has express lanes. The UK says basically, we want a presumption. You know, if your good is just going to stay in Northern Ireland and you're signed up to a trusted trader scheme, then no checks. The EU says radically reduced checks. There, you know, if you, you know, maybe you can go to very, very radically reduced to whatever, you know, lots of people in trusted trade schemes. So you can imagine on the trade elements, you could find somewhere if you wanted to, with a lot of intelligence sharing, because the EU would say it has actually compromised its principles really quite a long way already, in the sense that it's prepared to let a third country the UK operate one of its borders. And ministers keep on saying the EU is incredibly legalistic, but the EU is trying to run a system of getting 27 very disparate countries to operate together. It sort of has to be quite legalistic. And one of the things it can't really do is make exception after exception for the one member state that's decided it's had enough of joining. So I think you have to sort of look at the EU politics as well there, but they have made some exceptions. They've already moved on medicines to accommodate that and changed EU rules there. It's possible to imagine that they might extend that to another big issue, which is animal medicines, which I know farmers in Northern Ireland are very thing. So there's a, on those sorts of sets of issues, you could, uh, you could imagine doing things. Then there's the sort of wider things about sort of governance. Do Northern Ireland representatives get a say in any of the rules? Well, you could say, of course they should get a say, but then... The Norwegians don't get that much of a say. You know, there are other countries the EU has to look at who might be saying, I'll have what they're having if the EU makes too many exceptions for Northern Ireland. So that's potentially a bit difficult. There's the UK saying, we don't want the European core anywhere near the place. That's quite a big problem for the EU because it has this, you know, one of its building blocks is that only the European core really gets aside issues of European law. The UK is running a system called European law. UK wants to knock that out. So I think, you know, but the trouble is that at the moment, relations seem to be so bad that uh, that the sort of, you know, just trust us, we'll run this and we'll see you right on the single market from the UK isn't cutting, cutting much ice. Could they have done a deal? Well, maybe they would have done if Michael Gove had stayed chair of the joint committee. Michael Gove was originally chairing it, you know, but then the Prime Minister changed tack in February uh 2021, replaced Michael Gove, chairing it with David Frost, who had a much more aggressive stance and has been one of the sort of big movers between this moving this out of the realms of pragmatic compromises, workarounds, 
into elevating it to a great big issue of principle. I think it's one of the big problems. If it's big issues of principle, there isn't a landing zone because you can't split the difference between loads of principles. If it's a, oh my God, how the hell do we make this thing work? And you know, to share Darren's view, something that's absolutely anathema to the EU, I would, I would say, would it be absolutely totally unacceptable to have a sort of second battery of checks on one or two things that you're really worried about in some of the Irish ports if they're being exported into the wider EU? Is that absolutely beyond the pale as a sort of, you know, defence against the bigger single market as opposed to the market in the island of Ireland? But the trouble is that this move last week has been seen as, you know, a very, very hostile act by the EU and the two sides aren't talking at the moment. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Claire, do you, how, do you think the EU's been... Have you been disappointed by how flexible the EU has proved? Would you hope, even though you're supportive of the protocol, would you have hoped for a little more flexibility. Yeah, we, we'd be very clear. We we want, you know, maximum access for, for, for Northern Ireland and have advocated that and have, and have um, pressed the EU to do that. And we, we've indicated our support for things like Greenland and we haven't been shy about, for example, that near triggering of Article 16. I think the SDLP were the first out of the traps to call that, that for the huge mistake it was. It, it is a little bit frustrating because there has been substantial compromise. And I suppose that we, we've stopped even asking the EU or for the UK to compromise because I'm not sure where people see the big compromises from the UK are. For example, you know, the vast majority of these checks, 80 plus percent, could be addressed by bespoke veterinary and SPS uh, arrangements. And the, the EU have even offered to sunset those so that once the UK actually figure out what it is they want to achieve with Brexit, that that could be changed. And bear in mind, given that at the moment the, the UK aren't changing their regulations, all of this is about the theoretical power for them to diverge. So all of this toxicity for Northern Ireland isn't even for any big particular thing that they want to do for industry. So there is a lot of, you know, I would do anything for Northern Ireland, but I won't do that. I won't compromise on on, on SPS. And I think that is frustrating. So um, as Jill said, the EU have made a number of changes. I mean, you know, for, for an organisation that is absolutely uh, rules based and legalistic, and I think everybody knew that. And isn't that, I think, why a lot of people voted for, for Brexit? They have moved. Medicine is a very substantial move in changing their own legislation and doing so with near unanimity. But there is a sense that each one of those uh, moves is kind of pocketed. The UK slips it into their pocket and then puts a hand out for the next one. That wasn't, I didn't hear a peep about that from the UK government uh, about a recognition of that movement because the narrative is that the mean old Johnny Foreigner, you know, won't let us do these things. It's also worth saying it isn't just about smuggling. It is about I mean, the, the, the processes that take place on the island of Ireland and, and, and particularly in agri-foods, but other manufacturing, where all the value is added in our economy, it's worth saying, while there's a lot of product moving from Britain to Northern Ireland, a lot of it is end product. It's the tin of beans or whatever you buy in the shops. Most of the jobs are in manufacturing and agri-foods and other things that require there to be no regulatory border. So there's scenarios where if the UK dropped its animal standards, which it, it, it wants the right to do, that that uh, diminishes product get in. And that's a disaster for Northern Ireland, by the way, never mind the single market, because our unique selling point is that we're high quality goods and that we're produced to high standards. So I, I, I think part of the, the problem is we don't know what the uh, UK's bottom line is. And if we're waiting to see what the DUP's bottom line is, we have no idea with that because they don't know until the far right of unionism tells them what their bottom line is. So any of the solutions that could be found around trade aren't going to satisfy the guys walking around with scarves around their faces uh, at all these marches. So, so you know, we can't find a, a solution that that is going to be to the satisfaction of the hardest lines of, of protesters on this. And we, we aren't clear that the DUP are at any point going to stand up against that. The only thing they want is a super hard Brexit with a hard border and there isn't any consent or consensus for that. Well, just to be fair to the DUP, because we don't obviously have a DUP representative on the panel. They've set out seven tests, haven't they? They'll say they'll measure anything against that before going back into a fully functioning 
government. You know, I just want to also... Well, I mean, good good luck to meeting that because, I, I mean, the, the, there's, there's, there's literally no possibility of, of meeting those, those seven tests and I think the UK government are aware of that too. Well, it's not just, of course, Europe watching this very closely and the UK's reputation internationally, but of course, America, the US is also watching the way in which this drama between the UK and the EU unfolds with the protocol. And we've seen the Biden administration, haven't we, put pressure on the UK to continue negotiations with the EU. How much influence do we think the United States will really have on the future of the protocols? We often hear voices out of the US express opinions on it, don't we? Um, Darren, do you think that the US really will have any influence in this, even though they will sometimes, I suppose, express opinions on what's going on here in the UK and the EU. But do we need to have regard for the for the for Biden, the Biden administration's position on this? I'm not sure. I think in some ways it's kind of slightly over egged that, isn't it? In the sense, first of all, it should be said that, you know, the Irish government and the, the diplomatic service in Washington uh, should be given lots of gold stars. I mean, they have clearly done a great job from their point of view of winning over lots of kind of US politicians on side. You know, they've frankly got the most Irish-American presidents in the White House since JFK, who, you know, has clearly got quite a lot of affinity uh, with Ireland. And they have, you know, alongside the EU, done a very, very good job of trying to convince American politicians that essentially they're on the right side and Britain is not. Though it's also clear that American politics is quite pragmatic and they know about the kind of deep and wide-ranging relationship there is with the UK. And I, I suspect in the end, you know, as you say, they make noises, they clearly feel the Good Friday Agreement is fundamental all of this and they're a guarantor and they want to ensure that that's not undermined. But I think they're not likely to get involved in any of the nitty-gritty uh, of any of uh, this. So in the end... I think, yeah, there's lots of noise around it, but frankly, they know that this is a dispute that's only going to be settled really fundamentally between Brussels and London. It is also interesting, I mean, you know, one of the things that's been a frustration clearly for Britain with Brexit, whether people agreed with it or not, is that Britain has never really been able to decide what actually Brexit is. And it's a bit like what Claire was talking about with the DUP, is that, you know, obviously Theresa May's entire administration was stifled by the fact that no one could quite agree what they wanted uh, from uh, Brexit. And there is an element of that now in terms of what's happening in terms of this legislation and this unilateral action. Clearly, there is also still an ongoing battle within the Conservative Party at the moment about what they want to see happen. We know that Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove want a far more conciliatory compromise approach uh, to all of this. They do fear about the international reputation. They do fear, though I think it's unlikely, of a kind of full-blown trade war with the EU. And then on the other side, you've got people like Liz Truss, who's, you know, trying to keep a section of the Conservative Party, and let's be very frank about this, on side. You know, Liz Truss very much views herself as a potential future Conservative leader. We know that could occur at any time in the near future. She will need MPs on side. And she's decided that the European Research Group, that hardline kind of Brexiteer group within the Conservative Party, could be a block that she could take with her. And it's one of the reasons she's taking a much a tougher line. All I would say, and we talked about Lord Frost, didn't we, Jill? I think referred to him earlier on. When I speak to EU diplomats, actually, you know what? In many ways, they quite like dealing with David Frost because David Frost was one of the few people they felt within the UK government who at least had an idea about the Brexit he wanted to see. Yes, they might not have liked it. And yes, he might not have a consensus across British politics, but at least he had a fundamental idea of what he wanted to achieve. And that, again, has been the frustration, I think, in the EU is that you know, the shifting sands of British politics has meant shifting sands of negotiations through all of this. Okay, thanks, Darren. Well, we are getting a few questions in now. So I'm just going to ask one more question, actually, to Jill before we move on to questions from those who are joining us online. But if you do want to add your questions into the Q&A at the bottom, pop them in there. We'll come to them in just a minute. Um, just a short one to you, Jill. I mean, another wider sort of uh, future question, really. You know, people have argued that, look, Brexit has potentially put Scotland and Northern Ireland on different paths now to England and Wales. Do you think it makes Scottish independence and potentially potentially a united Ireland more likely? And the more division we have with the protocol, just increasing that even further. What do you think about the future of the union, Jill? Uh, well, the evidence in Northern Ireland from a thing called the Life and Times survey that came out a couple of months ago, questions asked at the end of last year, sort of reconfirms that Brexit has made people think a united Ireland is a bit more likely, you know, in the relatively near future, 
even if it you know, has moved, supported a little bit, but it's still yeah, very far from the position where you know a go- government would have to trigger that bit of the Good Friday Agreement that says it has to has to have a border poll. In Scotland, it's really quite interesting because one of the most intriguing things about this is how the arguments have to flip. Brexit between the Brexiteers and Scottish independence people. Brexit has made the identity case for Scottish independence, a lot of Scots would say, much stronger because they want to be part of this Northern European arc. Nicola Sturgeon published her first paper about that last week. They want to be closer to the EU. And that question mark over continued EU membership that was in the 2014 uh, referendum has now completely flipped. So from saying Scotland might not be allowed back in, look at Spain, they might veto your membership, is now that the route back, if you want to be in the EU, is through independence. But simultaneously, it's made the economic case much harder because the sort of Brexit that at the moment the UK has, you know, with big regulatory distance, even if we're not using it yet, between the UK and the EU raises all those border issues in spades and makes, you know, and really is difficult because Northern Ireland economy is suffering from the fact that it's integrated as part of the UK economy. But if the Northern Ireland economy is very integrated into the economy, the Scottish economy is even more integrated cross-border. And putting in a full-fat international trade border across that is inevitably hugely disruptive. And finally, last week, Nicola Sturgeon started to admit that she would need to address the border issue. You know, to date, all the SNP has been saying is we'd need some sort of special relationship. But I think if you've watched this with Northern Ireland would say, slightly good luck with that. You know, it's not at all clear. And there's nothing like the Good Friday Agreement justification for making the sort of exceptions that the EU has been prepared to make in the case of England, Scotland. Can, can I just yeah. jump in on that quickly, Emma? Sorry, Please that's do. okay. Yeah. Just, no, I'm just, just thinking just, of just, imagining all those correspondents where it's the, been the island correspondents trying to <laughs> explain all the difficulties over the Irish land border and then we'd, we'd hand it over to the Scottish correspondents, there, wouldn't there we? Are far, if there they are were far trying fewer to negotiate crossings. That. Yeah. The big point is there are far fewer crossings, which does make it a bit easier. But anyway, at least true, we have a good true. base. But you're, I mean, you're, I think the SNP's argument in all this is, you know, obviously it's, it's slightly more difficult for them to having argued against Brexit about leaving the biggest trading partner that you know the UK had, i.e., the EU. Then for Scotland to do that with the UK is quite difficult. But all I would say is that because this obviously the break of the UK gets brought up quite a lot in relation to Brexit, and it's always really important to remember though, like how so fundamentally different. Scottish independence is from Irish reunification. And in many ways, Scottish independence is so much more easy than Irish reunification. I mean, trying to unite two countries, frankly, that have been apart for 100 years with the history, with the violence that we've seen, uh, with, you know, the subsidies that, frankly, Northern Ireland also gets from British taxpayers uh, to, uh, you know, it's such a complicated business. It is only a discussion they've now started to have quite openly in Dublin, but it is a process it's going to take, I mean, a long time. I mean, genuinely a long time. And there's little sign, actually, of public mood on either side of the border shifting dramatically one way or another. So I think sometimes when we talk about Scottish independence and Irish reunification, we kind of view them as quite similar. And in many ways, they actually couldn't be uh, very further, further, further apart. Absolutely, of course. Okay, let's have a look at some of the questions coming in then. Right, okay, a question about if we were to change the Prime Minister, would that change things with the protocol and could that sort of repeat itself again and again? So this is from anonymous attendee. Do you think that if someone like Jeremy Hunt were to replace Boris Johnson, that things with the protocol could change again and it could change with each UK new leader? Hannah, from your... uh, Claire, I beg your pardon, Claire, Hannah, could you tell us from your perspective... A different prime minister, how would that make things look from where you sit? I, I think it might. I mean, I think what people in Northern Ireland are really clear about is this isn't about us. This is about, I mean, it's not about the, the welfare or the economy of, of Northern Ireland or, or really the views of people in Northern Ireland. It is about Conservative Party internals. And I suppose that that uh, kind of ERG strain is, is I suppose, a base for Boris Johnson. So, yes, we think this and even the extremities to which Liz Trust have gone appears to be for their benefit, because it's certainly not for ours. Um, so, so, so perhaps 
collapse. I think um, I think it just underlines the fact that Brexit will never be done in that the trading relationship with the, the EU is always going to be a live issue um, for the UK. And the, the trilemma that Jill set out earlier about, you know, the UK having like maximalist sovereignty over everything and also having a part of a landmass across the water uh, is, is going to be impossible to square. So, um, yeah, I, I, I presume somebody like Jeremy Hunt would take a slightly more sensible and I suppose somebody the one nation type Tories who do to do understand that this is injecting enormous dynamism into the constitutional conversation you know I, I and, and many of the people I represent really weren't thinking in any in any serious way about constitutional change until Brexit underlined how imbalanced the relationship within the union is how really what we say and it, it is worth saying that the majority of people in Northern Ireland uh, have opposed Brexit at every opportunity they've had the chance to do and it doesn't really matter because this is about um you know MPs who represent England uh so so uh, I think that could uh, I think there are Tories who realize that this is accelerating the end of the union um and 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 uh, and might act on that basis mm. uh, Darren I mean with this sort of controversial legislation to override parts of the protocol what do you think of the chances are of it getting through Parliament? And I'm sure you were reporting on the confidence vote in Boris Johnson the other day. Did you think at that point, well, if he was to go here, what, what does all that mean for, for the big row over the protocol? Uh, no, definitely. I mean, you know, there are a lot of Conservative MPs, as Chris probably pointed out, are pretty uneasy about this. You know, a lot of them, and I, I, certainly, I, I don't like this argument that, you know, that no one over here cares about Northern Ireland. There are a lot of people over here who care about Northern Ireland. I think there are a lot of people in the UK. I think there's a lot of people in the UK government who care about Northern Ireland as well. I, yeah, I didn't frankly, say that, by the way. No, I just said the, no, the, the, the bill doesn't solve the problem for Northern Ireland. No, no, nobody cares. No, yeah, fair, fair enough. But I think, you know, there are people who, you know, have got the interests of people in Northern Ireland at heart uh, as well from kind of different sides. But you're right. I mean, if Boris Johnson was to go, who knows where we would end up? Yes, you would think, you would assume almost certainly likely, let's say if Jeremy Hunt, I think it's unlikely he would become Conservative leader, but if he did, that he would take a much more conciliatory approach. We know that if Liz Truss, for example, particularly if she is helped along in becoming Conservative leader by the EOG, that she may well take a very, very, very different approach, possibly even more of an aggressive one, given the struggles I think the Conservative Party will have with the polls for the next couple of years. And we know also, you know, governments change. And as guys rightly pointed out, Brexit was not going to settle everything and then that was it forever. The relationship between the UK and the EU has been difficult for decades. It's going to be difficult for decades in the future. It's going to have to evolve to and fro and it's going to change. And you could imagine, and we've heard some Labour politicians utter this publicly in recent weeks and months, though they've been frankly told to shut up, uh, that, you know, it is not impossible that the UK may well at some stage rejoin the single market or the customs union again, which frankly would obviously deal with lots of these issues that we're talking about tonight. So politics will shift, of course it will, and positions on the protocol and indeed on Brexit will definitely uh, shift. But yeah, there is no doubt if Boris Johnson goes this summer or this autumn, you know, that legislation, which is going to take, frankly, at least a year anyway, I reckon, to get through Parliament, if at all, you know, it, it, it might it, it might be a non-starter. So it, it is quite difficult. And, and that's one of the frustrations, I think, I suppose, and I get this from the EU side, is that they're very aware, you know, they can see what's happening in British politics. They're very aware uh, that what they're negotiating or what they're dealing with right now might not be the same case in six months' time or a year's time. Can I just clarify, it's Tobias Elwood and Daniel Hannan, both of whom are, are Tories who have talked about the UK rejoining the single market. It, it hasn't been Labour bringing it up, much as I would like them to. That That's coming from the Conservative benches. Oh, no, there's been a few. There's been a few. There was a Labour front bencher, I think, who was told, I can't remember her name, who was told essentially not to say it again. I think she did talk about Labour rejoining the single market. But anyway, anyway it's a fluid debate. Well, we've talked about how a different UK Prime Minister might impact things. Um, Tom asks... How would a Sinn Féin government in the Republic of Ireland potentially impact things? Now, just for people who perhaps don't follow Irish politics as, as closely as Claire and I do, we obviously saw Sinn Féin become the largest party uh, in the Stormont in the Northern Ireland elections here just a couple of months ago. And at the last uh, elections in the Irish Republic, well, Sinn Féin, if they had fielded enough candidates, they potentially would have won those. But they certainly won the largest share of the vote, and they may well be predicted to win the next Irish election. So if there was a Sinn Féin government, say, in both parts of the island, or at least Sinn Féin winning in both parts of the island, of course, we have power sharing in Northern Ireland. 
Do you think that might have an impact on things, uh, Claire? Yeah, I mean, it might, I suppose it's worth reminding people that gen, all governments in the Republic are, are are coalitions. You know, Sinn Féin kind of were the largest party, but I think it was just shy of 25%. So you still have to kind of get there in terms of of, of forming a majority. There's a large amount of consensus in in in, in the South about um, the approach to Brexit and, and about EU membership. It's 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 wildly popular. I, I suppose, yeah, I think the, 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 the Sinn Féin may have a slightly more confrontational approach on it. I think Politics is all about triggers, isn't it? And, and kind of forces pushing against each other and reactions and, uh, and and counter reactions. And I think, I mean, I know there's kind of the, the, the right, the Tory press kind of likes to imply that Leo Radker was a terrible agitator for Irish unity, which makes people laugh who follow Irish politics and that, you know, Michal Martin is more moderate. But th- there has actually been a lot of consensus. And I think people have tried to be quite calm about it because, but most people who are genuinely attached to the Good Friday Agreement know that it doesn't work unless, you know, Britain and Ireland are are, are working together as friends and equals. And, and that that's why this is so problematic. So, yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I, I Sinn, Sinn Féin are, are, are prob- would probably be more confrontational. But the bottom line is the Dublin is, is, is just very uncomfortable. There's no way that the UK's approach could fly with anybody. And I think they are um, keeping the diplomatic show on the road and have been quite moderated in their responses and 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 I think that's for the better at the moment. So what I'm saying is uh, I I don't think it would help the situation. Right. <laughs> right. We're in government but uh. I mean of course we have the prospect of a potential Sinn Fein first minister here in Northern Ireland but nobody has any power unless power sharing works which of course at the moment it isn't. Another question here well a question here about the Good Friday agreement particularly Jill, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. The Conservatives say they have to unilaterally change the protocol to preserve the Good Friday Agreement, using that as one of the justifications to make this pretty controversial step. And Mark is asking here, what is it in the Good Friday Agreement that means the protocol breaches it? Now, I know that the DUP's answer to this would be, well, the the Good Friday Agreement guaranteed that there would be equality north-south, but also east-west, and that nothing would change in terms of the status of Northern Ireland uh, without consent. And they argue that the protocol does change the status of Northern Ireland and hasn't had uh, unionist consent as well as nationalist consent in Northern Ireland, broadly speaking. But Jill, do you have any thoughts technically on what's contained in the protocol? And if you compare that to the guarantees given 25 years ago now in the Good Friday Agreement that preserve that equilibrium in Northern Ireland and whether we can really argue that the protocol does breach the Good Friday Agreement. So the government itself has argued the protocol doesn't breach the Good Friday Agreement because I think it had to fight off a case on this. Um, Claire was mentioning the sort of far-right unionism, uh, traditional unionist voice, the Alistair case, fought the protocol, I think, on the basis that it did breach uh, the Good Friday Agreement. The government argued it didn't and government, you know, uh, when it hailed the protocol was saying it was all compatible with the Good Friday Agreement. So the government sort of moved on this. I think the reason it has moved and it is claiming that there is a risk of social destabilization, you know, to use this doctrine of necessity that it's relying on to break an international agreement, it has to say, you know, that there's some, you know, clear and present danger, I think gravely imperiled or some sort of rather dramatic language which allows you to set aside international agreements, which the overwhelming majority of international lawyers seem deeply unconvinced by, including my colleague, Catherine Barnard. The government, I think, is relying on the fact that the power-sharing executive, so the functioning of the institutions under the Good Friday Agreement, isn't working. And that is because the DUP have said, until you sort the protocol, we're not going to nominate a deputy first minister. And although we call them first minister and deputy first minister, they're like sort of Siamese twins with the same powers and you can't have one without the other. So just as Martin McGuinness leaving the executive in 2017 meant Arlene Foster ceased to be uh, first minister, you can't have um, Michelle O'Neill as first minister when there's no, D- there's no DUP as the largest unionist party nominating a candidate. So I think that's what the government is saying, is that the institutions are not functioning. Uh, so it's, if you like, a sort of contingent rather a sort of existential long-term problem. But you could easily say that the government then is you know, allowing itself to be held hostage to the DUP, who have done this tactic to basically 
say to the government, well, nothing else has worked with you guys. Uh, you threw us under the bus in October 2019 pretty spectacularly after we had believed your assurances. So actually, we are now going to you know, absolutely hold you over this. And that's why the government is now arguing it. Is that, I mean, I think there is, if anybody watched Only Fools and Horses, that when Dell wanted Rodney to do anything, he would always go, on our deathbed, our mum said. And the Good Friday Agreement is a bit like that. We all do that. Whatever point you want to make, you go, well, the Good Friday Agreement. And anybody who's read it will know there's not very much about it, about borders, but it is about consensus and I suppose about partnership and all that. But this conversation gets very mind-bending when you argue that Brexit didn't need consent, but the protocol uh, does. And actually, I went to court with others in 2017 to argue and lost that uh, Brexit breached the Good Friday Agreement, making similar cases that Jim Allister has made a few few years later, when in fact the consent principle only applies to Northern Ireland's status within the UK. It's worth saying people like me want as much consent and consensus as you can get about everything else. But there's a very cynical two-step going on here. And, and Sammy Wilson said on Talkback, BBC Talkback the other day, oh, I'm sure we can't go back in yet because the UK government's case is predicated on the societal disruption involving us not going back into government. So it's all kind of, it's all kind of, uh, lined up in that way. And, and as you say, it, it isn't convincing legally, particularly when that uh, exception argument would, would suggest that they've tried everything else and they haven't, including, you know, Article 16, which a few months ago was kind of in fashion as, as the solution to this. OK, let's uh, rattle through a few more of these questions. We've got about 10 minutes or so left. Let's talk about the UK's reputation on the international stage and potential trade deals further down the line. Can any of you give a view on whether you think the protocol and the uh, row over it really could affect the UK's ability to do trade deals with the rest of the world? Is it going to have an impact on that? Or do you think other countries will look at it simply in terms of what they've got to gain from a trade deal with the EU? Or will the trustworthiness of the UK be in question uh, going forward, Darren? Uh, well, I mean, you know, the old term the Fidges Albion um, was around for a long time because, you know, for a long time, countries simply didn't trust the UK in many ways, or, or Britain. It, it didn't necessarily hold them back. I'm not entirely sure it, it does. Um, th this argument somehow is going to kind of decimate Britain's reputation abroad. I I'm not convinced by that. At the end of the day, trade deals are done because the transactional deals that benefit both sides they're also always open to dispute, the straight disputes all the time. It's the reason we've got the World Trade Organization. So in the end, and I don't think most of the world, frankly, particularly at the moment, is is following every twist and turn of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So frankly, is this going to prevent, I think, the UK signing trade deals with the rest of the world? No, it's not. I think the UK trying to trying to sign trade deals with the rest of the world has got bigger problems uh, than the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol. So uh, frankly, in a, in a short answer, uh, no, I, I'm not entirely sure it is. I mean, it does slightly go to competence. Does the UK government understand what it's signing? Because part of its argument is that we didn't think the EU would implement this like this, but it was actually crystal clear in the government's impact assessments that it, you know, that there were going to be checks, that there were these implications, the government was denying it. But I think Darren is right that I don't think it will affect people's interest in trade deals. We haven't seen the Australians and New Zealanders saying, well, no, we don't think you're going to be trusted. It might have affected the US trade deal for reason we were talking about earlier, but Biden, the Biden administration doesn't like trade deals much. Anyway, I do think it's bad, though, for the UK's international reputation as an upholder of the international rules-based system. And that is something that, as Global Britain, we pride ourselves on. We lecture lots of countries about it. And I think you'd be in a very painful position as a UK diplomat going into a slightly dodgy government nowadays and saying, you've got to uphold these international commitments because they'll just throw straight back at you. You're not. The only thing I would say is that it hasn't happened yet. And sometimes we do get carried away and we think the kind of introduction of this legislation means, you know, it's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I come back to my original point. In part, it is it is a negotiating uh, tactic to degree. And uh, yes, maybe the damage would be greater if it actually does happen. But we're a long way, I think, from that. Darren, we've got a question here for you about unionist support for the DUP's position over Brexit. I know there was a, a poll on this out the other day. What's your sense? The question here is, do you think the DUP are losing support from unionists uh, over its position on Brexit? And it's not a simple one to answer, is it? Because, of course, the DUP lost support in the recent elections, but actually their vote was pretty split 
because of the protocol. Broadly, how are the DUP faring with the stance they've taken over this, do you think? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite difficult. I mean, you know, the DUP in some ways backed itself again into this corner by taking a side in Brexit. And that brought questions about the Constitution to the fore. And it's fair to say that, you know, Unionists in Ireland with all the questions, in Northern Ireland, about all the questions about the future of the UK do feel threatened. And they have done. That's kind of, it's pretty intrinsic into kind of Unionist feelings on the island of Ireland, stretching back a very long period of time. They have felt kind of almost cornered constantly about their position you know, inside the UK and on the island of Ireland. And yes, Brexit in some ways has heightened those fears even more. And the protocol has just added on an awful lot of kind of uh, made that even even worse. And, you know, there was a chance, I think, for kind of moderate unionism to kind of sell the protocol. I mean, Arlene Foster kind of tried to do that for about two weeks last year when she said, yeah, it could be the best of both worlds. Uh, that argument didn't settle. And yes, you know, Claire is kind of right in the sense that there is a hard unionist view now, which the DUP feel they need to appeal to because it has certainly taken root, kind of Jim Allister's traditional unionist uh, voice party, and so the DUV. And so I feel that the DUP have taken a much harder line in many regards because of that electoral position, because they have been losing support. And they were slightly squeezed, weren't they? Because kind of moderate unionism, there were Unionists who don't feel as agitated about this, who may well have switched to uh, the Alliance uh, Party at the last elections. But yes, the EP is under an awful lot of electoral pressure. They've had to take a stance on this. They've clearly taken a pretty hard line now. They hope that that will shore up support. I'm sure there's a view within the DUP that actually holding on to, and then you'll know better than I do on this, that there has to be, I think, an election within six months or potentially before the end of the year, that again, they might do better. They might potentially win back that first position within the assembly if they stick to this hard uh, line but i think i think you have to understand that if you you know if you live elsewhere in the uk that the million so kind of protestant slash unionists in the kind of north of ireland in northern ireland have had a history of essentially feeling a bit isolated a bit uncertain about the future a bit insecure and my word they really feel it now and that's why i think there's been a very forceful reaction to the sound on the protocol mm. Yeah, you're right. We could end up with another elections here in Northern Ireland in six months time, although there are legislating ways potentially around that. Well, we're coming up to the end of this session, but let's just end on, on a good question here. To, to all three of you, what are your thoughts on whether the protocol will still exist as it is now in five years? Or really, will the protocol still exist in five years? Are we really, whether we like it or not, whatever your view on it, do we have this thing that we have to now work with and it is going to be there for a number of years to come? Claire, what do you think? I think it has to because it's a little bit like the Good Friday Agreement. There's a lot of people who didn't like it, but they haven't come up with a better idea. And and I think there, there just has to be a system and a way to to manage that flow. And I think just to build on what Darren said there, there, there is unionism has, has always felt uh, cornered is probably a fair way to put it. But just they do d demographic change and societal change and, and, and modernization. And, and the protocol is kind of being used as a as a vessel for a lot of different grievances and concerns. So it's ha having a an inflated, I, I suppose, a totemic significance, but there has to be a way to manage trade. Um, so you know, the, the name might be changed or whatever, but I, but I think it will be it will be the protocol because nobody has a better idea. Jill, is it is it here to stay then? You need something to uh, solve what Claire referred to as the trilemma of uh, UK no longer inside the customs union and the single market and doing that so something like that hopefully operating a bit more pragmatically and sensibly and in a okay way and we may see but I think it has to depend on a change of government not a change of conservative leader you may see a closer relationship in some limited aspects between the UK and the EU which is the operation of the protocol as well I think uh, yeah a Labour government would do an SPS agreement very quickly I don't think they're ideologically riven by the ability to diverge on animal welfare standards and things like that. So, Darren? Yeah, just, I, just, I, I completely agree with Jill on this point that, frankly, if we have a change of government, then that is entirely possible in the next couple of years. And there is a sense of, I mean, Labour feel at the moment they can't really talk about Brexit, but that will change. And, you know, the Labour Party is intrinsically 
pretty pro-European. And I think there will be increasing voices within that party talking about much closer relationship with Europe, potentially looking at things like the single market and the customs union again. Will that happen within five years? Probably unlikely, but you could see a path drifting that way. So I think, yes, the protocol in some form will exist, but at the moment, you could look back at this and see that these this was the lowest ebb for UK-EU relations and that actually, as our politics changes here at Westminster, that that could very quickly change as well. All right, Darren. Well, thank you very much. Well, we've just hit seven o'clock on the dot. Brilliantly done, Darren. Anyone would think you're a reporter who's used to talking <laughs> down to uh, exact timings. So thank you to Darren and Jill and Claire for all your insights tonight. It's been very useful. Of course, the debate over what to do with Northern Ireland and trade post-Brexit has been with us for a number of years, and I don't think it's going anywhere soon at all. So I'm sure we'll be discussing this uh, plenty more times. Now, if anything about the debate tonight has interested you, if you want to tweet about it, uh, the hashtag is hashtag IQ2. Um, It's been a great event. Thank you to Intelligence Squared Plus for putting this on for having me here in Northern Ireland to host it for you. I think we've all learned a thing or two and hope to talk to you all soon. And thank you for everybody who logged on tonight. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access too. Currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.